while ago, I, I have a friend named Peter, and uh, me and him were big-time buddies up in Washington, and he's Catholic, and uh, we got into a pretty intense conversation over the phone. Uh, he found it amazing that I thought that a monk on the other side of the world would be judged for his sins and go to hell. He said to me, well, if the monk lives to the best of his ability, to what he knows uh, to be true, his own standard, why would he be judged and be sent to hell just because he hasn't heard about Jesus? Now, I know uh, at least some of you guys have heard that kind of question before. How many of you have heard that? All right. Now, with this question, it seems like it's an honest one, right? But it's actually pretty deceptive, believe it or not, because what it, that is is actually an accusation of God's righteousness. How could God send someone to hell for something he didn't provide that monk? How could a tribe in the darkest parts of Africa be sent to hell just because God didn't give them a Bible? What kind of God is that, they say? Now, when people blast God right in front of us, maybe at our workplaces or at home, uh, what should we be thinking in our minds? How should we respond? Many of us uh, are tempted to join along with them, right? And many a times we have joined along with them uh, with their accusations by just leaving their accusations hang in the air as we remain silent. Some blasphemous let's say that God is more evil than the rest of us and he should be thrown into hell. Now, my question is, so is God wrong in revealing his wrath to people who don't deserve it? you got to be really keen on the way I phrased that. Is God uh, wrong in revealing wrath to people who don't deserve it? The answer would be yes. But here's the thing. Everybody deserves it, right? Everybody deserves God's wrath. He would be wrong if he revealed his wrath. Like verse 18 says, he's revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in our passage today, Paul proves at the same time in this text that all men are guilty before God, and therefore God is just in revealing his wrath. So we're going to read from, uh, let's read from 18 all the way to 23 right now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their truth suppress the righteous, or by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So today we're going to see three compounding reasons. And I say compounding because they all gather strength from each other and pile upon each other. Three compounding reasons why God is just in dealing out retribution to men. So our first reason why God is just in dealing out retribution to men is because of man's recognition of God. Man possesses a certain knowledge of God, uh, specifically of who God is and what he requires. Mankind has a knowledge of God that Paul argues leaves them with no excuse, like we saw in verse uh, 20. 
Now, when Paul says that men have no excuse, what he means to say is men have no wiggle room with the charges that are laid on them. They can't protest against God's wrath being revealed to them. They don't have any possible reason or right to justify their ungodly actions before God. So why can't a man in Africa die never hearing the gospel and then stand before God and accuse him of doing wrong? How come he can't call God out on being unjust or have unproven charges? Well, verse 19 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So when Paul says what can be known about God, he's speaking about the recognition of God. He's saying that this recognition of God is plain to men. It's obvious. Men know. And Paul goes on to say that it was God who actually showed this to men because God has shown it to them. God gave men the ability to recognize or acknowledge God's existence. Not only did God let man know he exists, but he showed him in such a way to man so that he would know certain things, certain particular things about God. Now, in verse 20, we see that uh, God revealed his invisible attributes so that they can be clearly perceived or understood. And I ask, well, how can we understand or see invisible attributes? Well, Paul goes on to say that through the creation of the world, through the things that have been made, the created order. So this truth is talked about all throughout Scripture, namely the truth that we can know things about God, about his invisible attributes through creation. Job 12:7 implies that all animals, birds, fishes, bushes testify that God is the sustainer and creator of all things. He said to his friends, ask them. They know who they draw their breath from. So just like in other places too. But Paul further says that in our passage that the invisible attributes God shows the man are specifically what? His eternal power and divine nature in verse 20. Those are the specific attributes. So when we look at creation, we can sense that it took something powerful to make this, right? Job said, ask the bushes, ask the trees who they draw their breath from. And I say yes to Job, right? Every time I go outside to pick up a broccoli head off my plant that I grew, I say yes, right? This I understand, right? I perceive something more powerful going on than just random molecules doing whatever they were wanting to do at the certain time they evolved. And, uh, I mean, simple things like watching a BBC series on planet Earth. I can have the greatest worship sessions in my own heart, right? Even though there are a bunch of British people talking. I can just say, wow, God, you are amazing. It brings me to tears sometimes. And, and people live as though they know God made everything, right? People live as if they know that this world was made by an eternal, powerful God. It's, it's pretty crazy for me to walk away after eating my broccoli thinking, well, I'm glad that in this purposeless, random, chaotic universe, my broccoli didn't change the composition of itself to a rock when it was sliding down my throat, right? People don't think like that. People don't walk in rooms holding their breath just in case the oxygen in the room decided to corner itself in one side and they, just, they can't breathe and they die. People live as though this creation is not arbitrary or pointless it's not pointless it has a purpose right 
Creation is not arbitrary. Creation speaks God talk. Creation is a minister of God. God promised in 820 that he would sustain the patterns of this world until the appointed time. Now, to see creation is to know that there's something beyond it, like I said, something that caused it and something that created it for a purpose. Who here knows who Richard Dawkins is, right? He's a leading atheist and a, an antagonizer of the Christian faith, and he's also a biologist. I want to quote something that he said here. It's pretty interesting. He says, quote, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. End quote. Now, he's a biologist at a pretty high-level university, but that seems kind of hard-headed, right? You have to work pretty hard to go against this truth that God has made manifest in the created order. Creation is evidence enough of an, of an eternally glorious God. Even Dawkins sees the beauty of creation, right? And beauty can't design itself by random chances. Uh, with all the women in here, I did the test before, with all the women in here, uh, if you slept, had really rough five hours of sleep, and you rolled all over for five hours on your pillow and stuff, does that do justice to your hair? Do you wake up perfect and you can walk out the door looking good? No, right? It takes thought to, to put on makeup and do hair and do a certain hairstyle. And we could tell the amount of thought in some hairstyles, right? In the same way, it takes intelligence to create an intelligent universe. There has to be an outward power that created and governed this universe. If such power and order and design are on display here in this universe, it would be easy to assume that a greater intelligence and an internal power exists above it. You can't throw a stick of dynamite into a printing press and produce the Declaration of Independence. God made this creation to testify of himself. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, David tells us, even though there's no audible voice coming from my broccoli plants, there is a message that's being spread to all men throughout the earth, that there is a God, and he is all glorious, right? And he is all great. That is his message. That is the creation's message. God's majesty is on display through the creation. So why does Paul bring this up, though? So how does having this particular knowledge that there is a powerful, awesome creator God existing, why, why can't men offer excuses just because of that? Why can't men protest God's wrath or offer excuses to God or do what they most often try to do and shift the blame to God, right? Like Adam did, right? God, it was you who gave me the woman, right? It's your fault. Well, the reason is because with knowledge comes choice. With knowledge comes responsibility. And certain times, depending on the knowledge, it requires very specific responses or responsibilities. The word conscience itself, uh, which uh, is an inward testimony, a moral faculty that Paul talks about later, it, conscience itself means with knowledge, con and science, with knowledge, right? So there's a condemning factor of having knowledge that produces a certain response. Now, did you know that uh, every year, hundreds of people die due to allergies, food allergies specifically? 
And the worst food allergy I hear and I see is a peanut allergy. Why? Because it's the most intense, has the most intense results or ramifications, and it's the most uh, spreading. It's in a lot of foods. Now imagine a 13-year-old boy in eighth grade, right? He's new to the middle school. He's uh, a bit shy. He doesn't like talking to people much. And uh, people are kind of just not even noticing, paying him attention. But at lunch, a person comes up to him and wants to be nice to him. He's a new guy, right? So he offers him some fries. And the new kid, knowing his food allergy, of course, he takes the fries, but he doesn't really think about, you know, what's in the fries or what the fries are about. He's just kind. He's just happy that someone's being kind to him. It's, it's a nice gesture, right? But little did he know that those fries were cut on site. But other than that, those fries were cooked in peanut oil. So a couple minutes later, the boy chokes up and dies. Now, what's, what's your response? What are you thinking? Well, my first reaction is, that's a tragedy, right? I mean, the, he didn't know that the peanut oil was in the fries, and the other kid didn't know that he had a food allergy to peanuts. I feel sympathy because the boy's dead, and I feel sympathy for the other person because he was guilty. He, was, he wasn't guilty, but he just didn't know, right? I feel sympathy. But how about this? Another boy, 13 years old, going to the same middle school, different story, April 2008, he has food allergies with, to peanuts as well. So he's going through, uh, going through school, except he's well known. He's been to this middle school for a while. People know about him and know about his peanut uh, food allergy. Now, while at lunch, this other kid comes up to his lunchbox to the boy who has the peanut allergy and crumples up peanut butter cookies in his lunchbox and walks away. Then that peanut allergic boy takes some of those cookies that were on his food, eats them, ingests them, and then he chokes up and dies several minutes later. Now, what's the difference, right? What's your reaction this time? I would hope that rather than saying sympathetic, you would say murder. Why? Because of knowledge, right? Knowledge requires varying responses. Knowledge condemns. This boy recognized the other boy's allergic reaction to peanuts, and what did he do? He made a choice based on that knowledge, and he put cookies made of peanut butter into his lunchbox. Now, by the way, the second story is true, except the boy didn't die. He saw the peanut butter cookies and didn't ingest them. But the boy who crumpled up the cookies, he knew the boy's allergic reaction, and with that knowledge, he responded the way he did. And he's actually being held as a felon, right? And justly so, right? He had knowledge, and he acted on that knowledge wrongfully. And Paul says, rightfully so, when God's wrath is being revealed against unrighteous men, because God gave them knowledge of himself, and therefore man must react to that knowledge in an appropriate way. So let me ask a quick question also about this uh, importance of the condemning nature of knowledge. And I'm just going to go over it real fast to also show you why knowledge condemns. Why did Sapphira, the wife of Ananias, die? In Acts 5, right? Well, you say, well, she, she lied to the Holy Spirit by withholding uh, proceeds that they promised to give to the spirit-filled community, the Christians, right? Well, I would actually ask you to look at that passage again and realize that it was, wasn't because of that. It was because of her knowledge that condemned her, right? It was her knowledge of her husband's embezzling the money and her response to it that condemned her along with her husband. 
She did it in Basel. Her husband did. But she was lumped in with the same condemnation that he was and died just as well. Now, you can look at it later if you want. Let's look specifically at 5, 2, and 9. But God is just in dealing out retribution to men because men have a plain knowledge and recognition for who God is, and therefore they need to respond in a certain way. So Paul ends off verses 19 and 20 with, They have no excuse. They know they can't shift blame to God. They can't say they didn't know creation pointed to them. Therefore, this knowledge is a condemning knowledge and not a saving one. So men have knowledge of God. What did they do with that knowledge? The, the bully at school, right, took that knowledge and tried to poison the other kid. What does mankind do with the knowledge God gave them, made evident to them throughout creation? This leads us to our second reason why God is just in dealing out retribution to men. Second reason is man recognized who God was, and then man's rejection of God. Man rejected God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So do you see how Paul is lumping this condemnation? He's piling it on top of each other with words, words like, although they knew God. He is saying that they knew who God was, they knew truth about God, and they knew that God was eternally powerful and his divine nature was plain to them because God moved it on them, yet they still chose not to honor God or give him thanks. Now, when you look at this word honor, it can be more literally translated glorify. They did not glorify God even though they knew him. So God is eternally powerful and above all things, and he deserves glory, right? Man, by not glorifying God as God, essentially rejects God. And since God is above all things, created all things, and sustains all things, that means we, utter, we are utterly dependent on him for everything in our lives and owe him thanks. We owe him gratitude. Psalm 50:23 says, Your sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. God says that. Your sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. So we are to respond with the knowledge he gave us by glorifying him and thanking him. Glorify and gratitude him. Now those two things are exactly the things man refuses to give God. Now let me reword verse 21 so I can hit on Paul's serious note, here serious's tone. He has a serious tone here and a shocking tone. He finds it ridiculous that man does this. I'll quote, I'll say this in a paraphrase type of way. He says, even though man knows and recognizes that God deserves glory for who he is and gratitude for who he is, he still doesn't give it to God. Man has fallen deeper into a pit. There is a powerful force with that word although, coupled with knowledge or recognition. It's an indicting force, right? Now let me show you how this force works out. Back in high school, I used to get grounded a lot uh, from games and seeing Nicole because I didn't do my chores for that day. I, it's not like I chose purposely not to do them, right? At least that's the excuse I would give. I would just forget them, I told my mom. Now playing games and seeing Nicole were my two favorite things to do. And I won't say which one I enjoyed more, but it only made sense. She's not here. She's sick. No. But it makes sense. I enjoyed spending time with her. It makes sense, though, for my parents to hold that on a string because those are the things I was most fascinated with, right? The chores were not much. I just always forgot. They were like cleaning things like that. And my mom even wrote notes on the, on the refrigerator what my chores were for that day. There was a calendar, right? I knew what I had to do. So... What could be known about my chores was plain to me. 
because my mom had shown it to me. For my chores and their dates were clearly perceived by me ever since the creation of the chore list on the fridge. So I was without excuse. Although I knew the chores and their dates and my required response, namely to do them, I did not do them. I rejected my chores. So although man knew God, he did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. So same just response from God as my mom. No excuse. They should have responded to this knowledge of a great God with the utmost of gratitude, right, for their whole lives. How good is God to us? Let me quote this. Acts 14, 17 says this. Yet God did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Mankind knows to repay that goodness with joyful gratitude and praise. How do I know people don't? Well, because we expect that same kind of treatment from other people, right? Unjustly. We demand people to give us thanks or praise whenever we do something decent to them. But this is the God of glory we're talking about. And men are refusing to glorify him and thank him as God. Men are refusing to hold God up in their affections. Now, since they did not glorify God or give him thanks, they became futile in their thinking. Look further. Verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now this word futile packs a punch. It could be uh, translated vain, uh, useless, purposeless, frivolous, could be said. Men, specifically their minds here, become purposeless or pointless since they do not glorify God or praise God. Men who do not reflect God's glory back to him miss out on their whole purpose in life and are therefore fools, Scripture says. Paul says specifically. So whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking, you're to do it for the glory of God. If you refuse to glorify God, if you reject God, it negates your purpose and leaves you useless. That's what Paul's saying. It's much like an iPod that finds its purpose in playing videos or music. If it can't play videos or music, then it's useless. I can use it as a door stop or a paperweight, right, or a table coaster. It's useless. It's lost its entire value, and they cost a lot of money, right? It's frivolous. All creation echoes the message of God's glory and God's wonder and God's power. Yet when, man, when it's man's turn to do so, echo that message, he refuses to do it. So we halt the process that it's, that's been God-given to us. We reject our task and thus reject God. A preacher says this. I'll quote him. Your heart beats for him. You were given breath for him. You were given strength for him. You were given a mind for him. Everything you were given, you were given for him. And it is only by living for him you were ever going to find purpose or meaning. And even in that, you are never going to find purpose or meaning if your goal is to find purpose or meaning. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says, All things were created by Christ and for Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man rejects that. It's obvious why our recognition and our rejection angers God. And it's obvious why it de deserves God's just retribution. The one who is all worthy of praise and thanks. The one whom everyone owes everything to. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Yet man didn't even stop at a conscious rejection of God. As if that's bad enough, right? 
Look at verse 18. What did they do next? They suppress the truth. You can see this in verse 23 as well. And they exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the evidence just keeps piling against us and piling against us, especially in our next point. God is just in dealing out retribution to men because they recognize who God is, they reject who God is, and now they replace God. Man's man's replacement of God. So think about this. The easiest way to get rid of this knowledge of God and his worthiness and our required response to praise him is to replace it with something else. Replace God with something else. Replace his glory with something else. Man took the truth of what could be known about God and the response to it and not only rejected it, but suppressed it. They replaced it. They're trying to get rid of it. They're trying to dispose it. They're trying to do away with it. Mankind hates God so much that they can't stand the sight of his glory. Now, read 21 to 23 one last time. I want to get it all in a picture. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Now, notice this. They did not glorify him as God or honor him as God. It's not simple enough to just honor God or glorify God. You have to glorify him as God. That means he has to be above all other things, right? But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now notice that this list of their exchange deteriorates. It gets worse. Paul is trying to show how foolish the trade is. They're trading the immortal God or incorruptible God for images resembling corruptible man or mortal man. So Man is created in God's image. Remember that from Genesis? So man is an image of God. Yet here it's saying that we traded the image, we, retra- we traded the immortal God, so the original, God is the original, for images resembling mortal man. So in an essence, we're saying that we want to trade something off for an image resembling man. Yet it's not even a correct image. It resembles him. It's in a likeness of man. So in an essence, we're trading something off supremely valuable, the original, original masterpiece, so to say, for a copy of a copy of a copy. It deteriorates more, though. We don't just trade God off for a copy of a copy of a copy. We trade God off for what? Images resembling birds and animals and creeping things, bugs that wallow in filth just like us. This echoes Psalm 106 that refers to Israel, that they exchange the glory of God for an image of an ox. And they, that was said in Exodus, and once God knew that happened, God got so mad he was wanting to kill them all, right? He told Moses, wipe them all out. I'll start a new, I'll start a new nation with you. But Moses intervened, and God relented, thankfully. Now, it's almost as if man is saying this. God, you tell me and you prove to me that you're worthy of my praise and my gratitude. But not only am I not going to give it to you, I'm going to give your glory that you deserve to an image resembling man. No, better yet, I'm going to give my affections to a bird. Now, that's a little bit too high above the sky, too majestic. Maybe uh, something that crawls on the ground by four-legged, something furry, right? No, that's still a little bit too nice. Cats are pretty cool. I'm going to trade your glory off for an image of a bug wallowing in the mud. 
We steal God's glory and barter it off for worthlessness. We better believe God is angry. He says, I will by no means share my glory. So Paul is trying to make it sound, sound foolish and shocking, right? Sound uh, foolish and as shocking as it really is. And God does the same thing in Jeremiah 2.11 when speaking of Israel's idolatry, because that's what this is. He says, quote, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked at this. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In a quote. Notice how God points out how amazing and foolish it is to trade him off, to make this exchange for him, the fountain of living waters, ever-renewing source of life for broken cisterns that can't even hold water, idols. Now notice that he said two things, two evils, right? What did they do? They forsook God. And what did they do? Hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. They rejected God and they replaced God, just like everyone else does on this world. Idolatry is the foundation of all sin. All sin comes from a heart that exchanges God's glory for other things. So the biggest question in life is, what do you do with God's glory? Do you trade it off for trash, or do you prize it for what it really is, supreme treasure to be rejoiced in and made much of? Idolatry is the opposite of glorifying God and giving him thanks. Man chose the opposite thing required of him. Idolatry is giving the praise and thanks God deserves to other things, worthless things. It is essentially spitting in the face of God's great worth. We desire other things over the all-desirable one. This is the root problem of humanity, and it resides in our hearts, and it determines how we act. We don't prize God as God. We don't treasure God as God. We rather elevate other things in his place. We construct other monuments to receive our gratitude and our praise. And from that, all other sin manifests itself. Murder, pornography, lust, idolatry is the source of all sin. When the Israelites presented the golden calf to their community, they said, these are the gods who led you out of Egypt. They're trying to extract praise from people to this golden calf instead of giving it to the one who actually led him out of Egypt. So the things that have been made, Paul says, the created order, are supposed to reflect and magnify God's great worth and glory in the universe. Everything is supposed to mirror and uh, to act as a mirror, reflecting God's glory, his greatness. Creation is not a dead end of praise. It's rather an express way for praise. Creation is meant to be looked past. C.S. Lewis talks about following the sunbeam up its line to its source. It was Creation is made to prompt knowledge and wonder and joy, and the end result is a looking to God in praise and thanksgiving. Now, when Paul starts listing off these, now, these idols, we start. a lot of people look at this and say, well, I don't worship bugs. I don't see many people in America worshiping bugs, right? Well, don't let these primitive idols fool us, right? Here in America, we don't see people worshiping bugs, but I would uh, propose that we do far worse things than worshiping images of bugs. 
I want to quote a, a pastor. He had a pretty unique story that kind of gives us a description of our culture from the outside. Mark Driscoll. Let me uh, quote him. He says he was over in uh, India in the middle of nowhere at one point in his life, and he was by a shrine covered with feathers and chicken blood. And he was talking to a pastor's wife, and he was saying, uh, when do you think you could come to America and visit my country? And she said, well, I've already been to your country. I've, I've been there. He says, uh, okay, well, you're going to come back? She says, I'm never coming back. He says, well, why is that? She says, I cannot stomach the idolatry. And he says, well, that's kind of strange. That's not what I was expecting because he's standing right next to a shrine uh, apparently uh, uh, lifted up to hail or glorify the chicken god, right? And he can see shrines as far as the eye can see. And this woman's saying she can't stomach the idolatry in America. So he says, well, where are the shrines of idolatry or false worship in America? And she says, your God is your stomach and restaurants are everywhere. Your God is your sports teams and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television and all your chairs in your house are lined up so you can all gather around your idol and worship. End quote. That's pretty eye-opening, isn't it? It gives us an outside look into our culture and our lifestyle. So don't think idolatry is just worshiping bugs or animals. You can find out your idol easily. You can find out who your God is easily by asking simple questions. What do you think about most? What consumes your time and your thoughts? What do you speak most passionately about most often to most people? That's your God. Most things in this world are created for good, right? But we have to realize our potential in creating almost an idol out of almost anything. We have to realize that I can turn this doorstop over here into a thing that receives my praise constantly. And it may seem crazy, but people around the world do crazy things because we are wicked at its core. You've heard it said that we're idol-making factories, right? Well, that's what our heart is. We're constantly, we're made to praise God. If we reject God and replace him, we're always going to be praising something else. We're always spouting out praise for things, right? Depends where that praise is going to. So man suppressed the truth, right? He exchanged the truth of God for a lie, uh, verse uh, 25 says. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So most things in this world are good, but we can't turn the things in this wor world into Tupperware to store our praises, right? They're rather microphones. We speak in and out about God's greatness and God's graciousness to filthy glory exchangers like us. So that lie mankind exchanged for is the lie that God is nothing, right? That God should be served as if he was the creature, and God should be served as if he didn't exist. That's the lie we're exchanging. So, and even in verse 28, look at verse 28. This is, this is doing the same thing, exchanging the glory of God. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So, man saying to God, get out of my thoughts, get out of my reasoning. I refuse to be your image bearer. I don't want to even think about you. Men do, do not want God in their minds, and they don't want his glory in their minds either. And it's no wonder why men's mind become darkened and futile, like Paul says. And it's no wonder why men deserve retribution. And 
That's what Paul is striving for through 18 to 32 all the way to chapter 3. So let's go back to my Catholic friend, right? He says that it's unfair for God to reveal his wrath to a monk across the other side of the world because he hasn't heard the gospel. Well, we know from our text there's at least three reasons why God is just in revealing his wrath to that monk. One, man's recognition of God. God has made himself known through all, all creation to all men and therefore made known the correct response to knowing God. Two, man's rejection of God. Man rejects and refuses to acknowledge God as God and glorify him as God and give him gratitude as God. Three, man replaces God. Man does not even see fit to acknowledge God. And to acknowledge, that means to even have him in his mind, to approve of God in his mind. Rather, he trades off the glory and the worth of the immortal God for the worthlessness of idols. Jeremiah 2.5, God says this, What wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? We can tell, my friend, this from Scripture. That monk is going to go to hell, not because he didn't hear the gospel, but because of his sinful God-exchanging heart. The root of the monk's sin and the root of everybody's sin is a flat-out rejection and replacement of God, idolatry. What a slap in the face of God's honor. Yes, God, I know you made me and that bird and that sky and that lightning bolt and that nice uh, little girl of mine, but you know what? Instead of glorifying you because of those, I'm going to glorify them. I'm going to worship them and ignore you. I'm going to exchange your glory and my affections for those things as if your glory should just be discarded like a piece of trash. Right? We are horrible people. What did God save us from? We were monsters before we were saved. What darkness and what futility. Paul describes precisely how my heart was before I was converted and things that I still struggle with to this day. Let this past reminder of condemnation make you run to grace. Make you run to Romans 17. For in it the righteousness of God. For in the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. God is dealing retribution justly to monsters. And the words in this text haunt me as I look over them. Although Josh knew God, he did not glorify him as God. Although Josh knew God's decree, verse 32, they, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, Josh not only did them, but gave his approval for them. Paul is speaking about what we used to be and things we still struggle with. And he's speaking about how billions of people around this world still are. These words in this text in Romans haunt me, right? They're hard to read, but they make these words sound all the more sweeter. There is therefore no condemnation from those who are saved in Christ Jesus. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. So let's close with prayer. God, you are gracious to monsters. God, please convict us of this truth. God, we see your glory manifest everywhere, God. Fruitful seasons, food, my wife, my daughter who's coming along, God. What horrible, what kind of heart would give praise and glory to things that deserve to be thank, given to you for gratitude, God. Just, God, help us all. 
We need your grace. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ, God. Help us meditate on your son and prize you as you deserve to be prized, God. You are the supreme treasure. God, we can't find the idols in our heart without you, God. We can't fix the problem, but you can. Through your son, you have regenerated our hearts, given us new desires, God. You've given us a desire to worship you and follow you and give you gratitude. So please continue to draw us closer to you, God, and please place yourself foremost in our affections and in our lives so that you get the glory and the praise and the gratitude, God. That's what's best for us. I pray that you would help us. I pray this in your name, amen.